This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, let's bow for kneel for a prayer, and then we'll begin. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would use our hour here like you've been using this whole weekend. That you would bring truth to light. That you would make that light glorious and use it to change us. I ask for your spirit to work for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you want to know what the references are to these paragraphs I'm going to read to you, I've written them there on the board, so you don't have to ask twice. But for those who listen on audio verse, I'm going to just say them, and you can just push repeat if you want to hear it twice. So from Signs of the Time, December 30, 1889, from Workers' Bulletin, September 9, 1902, from Bible Echo, March 15, 1893, and from Bible Echo, July 2, 1894. In that order, here is the first statement. Man, with his human finite judgment, cannot safely question the wisdom of God. Hence, it is unbecoming for him to criticize the plan of salvation. Before this theme of redemption, let man lay by his wisdom in the dust, and accept the plans of him whose wisdom is infinite. God grants men a probation in this world that their principles may become firmly established in the right, thus thus precluding the possibility of sin in the future life, and so assuring the happiness and security of all. Through the atonement of the Son of God alone, could power be given to man to establish him in righteousness and make him a fit subject for heaven. The blood of Christ is the eternal antidote for sin. The offensive character of sin is seen in what it costs the Son of God in humiliation, in suffering and death. All the worlds behold in him a living testimony to the malignity of sin, for in his divine form he bears the marks of the curse." He is in the midst of the throne as a lamb that had been slain. The redeemed will ever be vividly impressed with the hateful character of sin and as they behold him who died for their transgressions. The preciousness of the offering will be more fully realized as the blood-washed throng more fully comprehend how God has made a new and living way for the salvation of men through the union of the human and the divine in Christ. That's the first paragraph, and let me just speak about it for a minute. I live in a sad and dangerous age, you do also, when many people are criticizing the plan of salvation. I mean, making light of the idea that Jesus would take our sins, or speaking as if that's not fair or not just, or talking as if there's something about that that isn't righteous. 
And I just want to agree with the statement and say, that's arrogant. God is wise. And if he goes to, if God uses his great wisdom and power to divine a, divine a plan to save me, I at the very least should accept it as fair and wise. It's not becoming for me to criticize the plan of redemption. This is the second statement. Those who understand this matter in its true bearing will more fully comprehend the glorious, wondrous plan of salvation. They will not desire to argue just what, it, what is meant by Christ being our righteousness. Nor will they desire to try to explain questions that do not in any way make more plain the terms of salvation. Isn't that interesting? So those of us who are experiencing Christ as our righteousness will not be inclined to argue about precisely what that means. We will be interested to know what are the terms because we want to be sure that we have his righteousness. We want to be very sure that we don't come up to the very end and, and are disappointed to find out that we thought we were going to be going into the kingdom. and we're, We want to be sure we know the terms, but we're not inclined to argue about it. <clears throat> this is the third paragraph. Third out of four, not out of five. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. We can make no atonement for ourselves, but by faith we can accept the atonement that has been made. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. You are not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. No man of earth, no angel of heaven, could have paid the penalty for sin. Jesus was the only one who could save rebellious man. In him, divinity and humanity are combined. And this was what gave efficacy to the offering on Calvary's cross. At the cross, mercy and truth met together. Righteousness and peace kissed each other. As the sinner looks upon the Savior, dying on Calvary, and realizes that the sufferer is divine, he asks why this great sacrifice was made. And the cross points to the holy law of God, which has been transgressed. The death of Christ is an unanswerable argument to the immutability and righteousness of the law. In prophesying of Christ, Isaiah said, he will magnify the law and make it honorable. The law has no power to pardon the evildoer, its office is to point out the defects that he may realize his need of one who is mighty to save, realize the need of one who will become his substitute, his surety, his righteousness. Jesus meets the need of the sinner, for he has taken upon him the sins of the transgressor. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The Lord could have cut off the sinner and utterly destroyed him, but the more costly plan was chosen. In this great love he provides hope for the hopeless, 
giving his only begotten Son to bear the sins of the world. And since he has poured out all heaven in that one rich gift, he will withhold from man no needed aid that he may take the cup of salvation and become an heir of God and joint heir with Christ. I don't know if you caught in that statement an idea that we could have been left to die for our own sin. Did you hear that? And then it said, but heaven shows the more costly option. That was Jesus to die for us. If you think about that, you'll realize what that means is that the life of all of us humans put together dying is not worth as much as the death of Jesus. <clears throat> that the death of Jesus was more costly than letting billions of people die for their own sin. It gives you an idea of the magnitude of the gift that was given. The last paragraph is shorter. All legalism, all the sorrow and woe by which you may encompass yourself, will not give you one moment of relief. You cannot rightly estimate sin. You must accept God's estimate, and it is heavy indeed. If you bore the guilt of your sin, it would crush you. But the sinless one has taken your place, and though undeserving, he has borne your guilt. By accepting the provision God has made, you may stand before him in the merit and virtue of your substitute. I read those statements to you just by way of introduction. Because if you ever hear someone preach or teach about righteousness by faith or about 1888 or anything related to that, and while teaching, they make light of the idea that Jesus could be the substitute for us. I want you to know <laughs> that they are not in harmony either with the book or with the testimony. And if someone in preaching about 1888 or about righteousness by faith makes light of the idea that God has granted us a probation, as if, that, as if that's not a very large gift, as if to say that the cross makes provision for salvation, if they make light of that idea, they're making light of one of the most precious things heaven has ever done. It's not a light thing to give us hope. In other words, we were hopeless. We didn't have any hope. And for God to give me hope, I am so thankful for that. The title of this talk is um, The Everlasting Gospel Should Be Easy to Share. And what I mean by the title, <clears throat> I don't mean that it's natural to share. My experience is that any time, like sharing with you is not really hard for me because you're not a hostile audience. And, uh, but when I'm going to share with people who I have reason to think might not like the fact that I'm sharing, that's hard. It's not easy for me. It requires self-denial. Uh, to confront someone, even if it's something as simple as if you do me wrong and I ought to confront you with it to make it right, that's hard. There's nothing natural about this business of, of the gospel. 
It's not natural for our fallen human natures. So when I say that sharing the, everlasting, the gospel should be easy to share, <clears throat> I don't mean easy in the sense of natural. I mean easy in the sense that it should be comprehensible. That is, you should be able to make the gospel understandable to the person with whom you're going to share it. Do you understand the contrast I'm trying to share with you between these two ideas of easy? It should be comprehensible. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. <clears throat> We're going to look at verse 35. Maybe for a whole sentence, we should start in verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. Is that a simple verse? It is simple and plain. The Apostle Peter said that to be accepted with God, it really doesn't matter your ethnicity. That's not one of the conditions of being accepted with God. Uh, the conditions of being accepted with God, one is that you fear him. Do you see it in the verse? That you fear him and that you work righteousness. Now, that sounds, I, frankly, it sounds to a lot of people a lot like legalism. That you'd be accepted with God because you fear him and work righteousness. And I just want to tell you why it wasn't legalism when Peter said it. Peter wasn't explaining how you work righteousness. And he wasn't explaining by what means God can accept someone. He was merely explaining in the most simple practical terms the conditions of being accepted. The, the conditions on our part. And you know what the conditions on our part are? It's that we fear God and work righteousness. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord doth require of you. It's to do justly. It's to love mercy and it's to walk humbly with your God. It's not like we're dispensationalists. It's not like God has several plans of salvation, one in the Old Testament, one in the New, or something like that. Being right with God isn't complex. It's those who put themselves on Christ's side, those who work righteousness, those who fear him, they're the ones that are accepted with him. I'm just trying to say to you lots of ways what the verse just said. Look at Romans chapter 2. This is probably forward about 20 pages for you. Well, not that many, 15. <clears throat> Romans chapter 2, and looking at verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their heart, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Do you see in these verses that Gentiles 
that don't even have the law that they could end up being on the right side in the judgment? They could. They could show the work of the law written in their heart. You know, that would mean that they were of that class that feared God and worked righteousness. And if they were of the class that feared God and worked righteousness, are they accepted of him? Peter said yes. This passage says yes. It says in the day when God judges judges the secrets of men, that he's going to judge them, well, it's by Jesus Christ. Isn't that verse 16? In the day when God will judge the secrets of men, but there you have a hint about the means of justification. When God judges the secrets, how does he do it? It's by Jesus Christ. In other words, it's the idea of Revelation 3.5, that when their name comes up in judgment and they're found to be overcomers, that the blood of Jesus covers their life so that they're given white robes in the judgment. They're covered with not their own righteousness, but with some other righteousness. Let me just show that to you while we're talking about it. Look at Revelation 3. Revelation 3 and verse 5. He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Do you see this as a direct reference to the investigative judgment? Where does this happen? The location would be in heaven, right? Before the Father and before the angels. And who's doing the confession there? Jesus is confessing. He's confessing. And when he confesses that, that someone is his, when he claims you or I as his own in that investigative judgment, in the metaphor, we're given a white robe. We're an overcomer before we get the white robe. Do you see that here? He that overcomes shall be given a white robe. That's the first part of the verse. So what happens first? You're an overcomer or you have the white robe? You're an overcomer. You're an overcomer in life. That's why you're a probationer. You die. Then in the judgment, you're given a white robe. In the judgment, you don't wear your own righteousness. It's not that the overcomer in the judgment is said, well, he was good enough. The overcomer wasn't good enough. If he was good enough, he wouldn't need a white robe. But what does the overcomer get? A white robe. But there's an implication in this verse about those who aren't overcomers. It's that they're going to be denied before the Father and before the angels. And if they're denied... They're going to stand in their own robe, and it's not going to be white. It's possible in the study of the themes of the gospel, I think this needs more preface before I can finish the thought. Let me tell you my own testimony, not my life testimony, not that one, but my testimony about studying righteousness by faith. <clears throat> I found... I started out with the book Lessons on Faith. Have you seen that book? It's not quite accurate to say Jones and Wagner wrote it. It was someone else put it together, but they wrote the articles that are in it. And I was a young man in high school on a mission trip over Christmas break in 1989. I was in Mexico. In fact, I was in La Una, Mexico. And... Uh, it was the first time they'd had snow in 20 years was the week I was there. Just something to go to Mexico and have snow while I was there. 
And uh, I was going out early in the morning under the street lights. There weren't many, but there were enough to find one. And reading this book, Lessons on Faith. Oh, it just was like light in a dark place. A really useful book for me. It's a series of Bible studies on faith. You know, I ended up writing a whole book on faith. It died with one of my computers. But I don't regret that I wrote it. Um, I don't regret that I wrote it. Because the writing of it was such a blessing to me. All I did is I took the word faith and looked it up everywhere. I looked it up everywhere in this book that I find faith. Then I did another study where I looked up every word, every time I can find something related to righteousness or holiness or just or justification. In other words, I went after studying salvation in the book. I just want to thank God for that book, Lessons on Faith, that gave me a taste so that I would see that God is good. We're invited to do that, right? Taste and see that God is good. And when I had a taste, it made me hungry. And then I could go after myself to try to find these things and understand them. I shared yesterday about, maybe I didn't share enough of it, but when I found Hebrews 12, and what Ellen White says about Jesus being the author and finisher of our faith, that was such meat for me. It, it buoyed me up. I, I speak in past tense, but it's current tense too. It happened and it's happening. It's, it's not like it's a change. What I'm trying to do is to inspire you to try this. Like you could just take concordances and computers and you could just read everything. It wouldn't be like a lost cause you would find so much light for you in what was written. I came across in Ellen White's writings, I'll even share with you my philosophy about compilations. I'm sure you've heard some people's philosophies about compilations. I use compilations. I think that if something's inspired, it's inspired. And uh, if I can always look up the context later if need be. You know, what it says... Ellen White doesn't write so enigmatically. She doesn't write so in such an obscure way that if you take her out of context, you can really mess up what she says very often. Usually what she says, of course it can be done some, Mr. Mr. Joseph, but I saw the look on his face was of horror. <laughs> but typically, if you have one sentence from Ellen White, you can get something out of it, and there's just a lot of value. So I like compilations. But what I found is that when people have made compilations, it's almost been like in making a bone dump. What I mean is that if Ellen White in her initial letter mentions something about cinnamon, but the rest of that letter is going to have the most amazing statements about righteousness and forgiveness and mercy and God's goodness, the letter itself is just really beautiful. And if you pull out the sentence about cinnamon, well, sure, it's still true, but it's like the bone. And what we really need is the meat. Uh, I'm not saying that we don't need the bone, but I'm saying it works better. So when I went after these things myself, 
I began to fall in love with the periodicals because they have whole articles and the manuscript releases because they have whole documents. And I had just found that Ellen White writes a lot more about the gospel than I ever really encountered in reading the normal books. Am I teaching some conspiracy theory? No. I think it's very natural to pull out the bones. I'm just saying that if you want to find the rich things, you're going to have to dig for them. Similarly, in the Bible, the rich things of the Old Testament are rarely observed. Like, I've fallen in love with the book of Deuteronomy. Why don't you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 9? We could go to almost any chapter in that beautiful book. But Deuteronomy chapter 9... And we're going to go to verse 7. <clears throat> now we'll go to verse, we'll go to verse 4. It's hard to get started. I mean, it's hard to not start earlier. Deuteronomy 9.4 says, Speak not thou in your heart. After that the Lord your God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord does drive them out from before you. Suppose God really prospers you in something he gives you to do. Is it because you're such a good person? It might be because this world is such a wicked place. It might be because people are so hurting and because there are so many problems that God prospers you despite all. Verse 5, not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart, do you go in to possess their land? Do you notice it says their land as instead of the land? But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God does drive them out from before you, that he may perform the word which the Lord swear. I left out the word the and. And that he may perform the word which the Lord swear unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God gives you not this good land to possess it for your righteousness. For you art a stiff-necked people. Do you feel like, like God is saying the same thing over and over? Well, look at verse 7. Remember and forget not. Don't those mean the same thing, remember and forget not? Remember and forget not how that you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you did depart out of the land of Egypt until you came into this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. If you've ever read Hebrews 3 and 4, it's commenting on these verses right here. The provocation in the wilderness and remembering and entering in and unbelief. I mean, there's more to the story than just here. But do you see that the idea of righteousness not by works is as old as Deuteronomy? That in Deuteronomy 9, isn't it very emphatic that God's blessings are not a reason? It's not like when he's blessing you, it's for the uprightness of your character. It's not for your, because of your righteousness. It's like he doesn't want you to forget 
even though he is displacing people that are still wicked today, he doesn't want you to forget that you were wicked very recently. Doesn't he say, remember how you provoked the Lord? And if we have a hard time with that, we should seek the Lord for a thorough and real conversion. Here's what I mean. I'm thinking of Titus 3.3. But we should look at it, because you're not thinking of Titus 3.3. Look at Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. If that doesn't sound true, that you're part of the we, I think you ought to do more heart-searching and seek for a different experience. But Paul didn't have any trouble including himself in the we when he wrote it. He said, we also were at one point foolish and disobedient. We were deceived. We were serving various lusts and pleasures. We were living in malice. We were in envy. We were hateful. We were hating one another. He says that because it could be by the conniving of the devil that when you see someone who's living in malice and hateful, who's serving various lusts and pleasures, someone who's deceived. When you see someone like that, you might feel like, you might feel to them in a way that is just completely inappropriate, since that's the very way that you were, right? Also, when you see someone like that, you might conjure up your own imagination of how to help them. And it might be the wrong method. And Paul goes to very plain lengths here in Titus 3 to tell you how to help them by reminding you how you, why should I say second person, to remind me and you, to remind us how we were helped. Look at verse 4. But after that, that's after that time, but after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. What was it that helped us when we were living in malice, hateful, and serving various lusts? We don't want to say the love of God happened. Because wasn't he loving us even before we were living that way? So what's the key word in verse 4 about the love of God? It showed up, right? It's when we saw it. It's when it became apparent to us It's when we observe the love of God, then that really moved us. And when it moved us, we changed. Do you think maybe that's what might help people you know today? Do you know people today who are serving various lusts and pleasures? Who are hateful and hating one another, are deceived? It just looks like there's an answer here, doesn't it? Verse 5 sounds like Deuteronomy 9 not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. 
How is it that God managed to save us? <clears throat> well, he showed his love to us. That was the part in verse 4. And when he showed it to us, apparently that set the ground where he could do some other things. Do you see that in verse 5, some other things he could do? Like he could change our heart, right? Doesn't it say regeneration? That he could make us new by the Holy Spirit? Those were the things he accomplished after we saw. When we say that the everlasting gospel should be easy to share, this is the idea I'm trying to, un to teach. It's that when you make the love of God apparent to people, you set a groundwork where God can do some amazing things in them. He can change hearts. What kind of hearts could he change? Would it maybe even be people serving lust and pleasures, living in malice and hateful and hating one another, deceived? Like, what, we're, what we read about in verse 3 are the cases that we wrote off a long time ago. What we read about in verse 4 is a reminder that that was us a while ago. What we see in verse 5 is what God did to make the difference, and he can do it surely for anyone. When Jesus was here on earth teaching the everlasting gospel to people, he didn't do it in the way that maybe you would expect. Jesus doesn't give a long list of sermons in the gospels about righteousness by faith. A lot of what we learn about this, we gather from Paul's writings and Deuteronomy and some other sources. When Jesus mentions the word justification, it's not often in a context that you would recognize in a sermon on righteousness by faith. But Jesus surely taught righteousness by faith he used the Titus 3, 3 to 5 method. He revealed the love of God to men. And when he revealed the love of God to man, you know, it laid a foundation. And then people who were like serving various lust and pleasures, that would be like publicans and whores, for example. Do you know, they were deceived, those people. And when he revealed the love of God to them, why God was able to renew them by the Holy Spirit, by the washing of regeneration, he was able to change their hearts. And they ended up being accepted of God. I'm thinking of one that was beating on his breast in a parable, and he said, God be merciful to me, a, a sinner. It might be in that parable that he didn't even understand the substitutionary atonement of the Savior. But he really knew that God was merciful and that he needed mercy and he was really asking for it. And was that enough to be justified according to the Lord Jesus? He went down to his house justified. And is truth exclusive? It is, because he said, and not the other. Right? It's not that they both went that way. The other, I mean, of course, the publican, excuse me, the Pharisee, who thanked God that he was different 
Do you see that Titus 3 is reminding us that we were the same? It's reminding us, it makes me think of that passage that all of us should learn as a reference. I mean, we should learn not just the idea, but the reference, 1 Corinthians 6. We should all learn that reference because in the next two or three years, our church is probably going to be racked by serious issues over homosexuality. Probably it's going to be a serious problem. And 1 Corinthians 6 is one of our best verses on that. Would you just look at that with me for a minute? Because it matches what we're talking about right now and it matches what we're going to be talking about in the future. 1 Corinthians 6. And we're looking at verse 9. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? When it says the unrighteous, that would be those who don't receive the white robe, right? Because if you don't receive the white robe, there's no way you're going to be counted as the righteous. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters. So fornicators would be people who are living with their girlfriend. Idolaters would be people who worship their belly or worship Buddha or worship their ancestors. Nor adulterers, you know what those are. <clears throat> but when you come to effeminate nor abusers of themselves of mankind, that, those are two different phrases for the more feminine and more masculine partners in a gay relationship. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Oops, excuse me, God. But it's the same thing, right? Verse 11, and such were, what does it say? Some of you. But you are what? Washed You are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It has our entire philosophy of homosexuality right there. You can't go to heaven as a practicing homosexual, but you surely can go to heaven as someone who has practiced homosexuality because you can be washed, you can be sanctified, you can be cleansed, But do you see that it's not at the end of the list nor at the beginning? It's just in the middle? Because it's not like it's the only sin in that category. It's it's the whole bunch of them. And it wouldn't be accurate for us to kind of single it out as like the only. But it's just one of a bunch. It's almost like what Jesus said, that except you also repent, you shall likewise perish. Uh, It's not like that any of us can get to heaven without the righteousness of Christ. I feel like it would be fair to give an opportunity for someone to ask a question. Does anyone here have a question who doesn't intend to take over the meeting? Yes. Can someone help my brother out? Where does Jesus talk about children being justified? Um, 
Okay, so you can find that. Anyone else have a question before I go on with another thought? So let me review what I've just said. What, first, go ahead. That's very silly. So uh, some evangelical apparently has accosted our brother, and when, we sh and when he was shown Revelation 3.5, the idea that we're given a white robe, he says salvation is by some mean other than Jesus. Oh, so let me just, I understand. Let me just clarify it for those who are listening or will be. When Revelation 3.5 says that overcoming is the condition, it's not like it's introducing a new gospel. When it says in the end of Revelation that <clears throat> all things are for him that overcomes, that's not a new gospel. But it's very clear in the book of James, we've studied it all, all this quarter, right? I mean, all last quarter. Very clear that faith works. Why? In Hebrews 11, faith works. And it's very apparent that faith overcomes. So, in fact, Paul said that those that are in Christ are a new creature. All, old things are passed away, all things are new. But he also said that those that are in Christ, God causes us always to triumph. You know, that word triumph is related to the word overcoming. Faith is overcoming. So when Revelation 3.5 says, he that overcomes is given a white robe, you know it's saying not those who claim to have faith, not those who profess to have faith, not those who had faith written on their uh, church uh, emblems hanging from the wall. It, it's not the ones who were singing about faith. It's not the ones who preached using the word faith, but it's the ones who had faith. Because those that have faith are the ones that overcome. That's why. Those who overcome, those are the ones that have faith. I don't mean that when we teach things right, it always works. I think that it could even happen that a rich, run, rich young ruler could approach you, he could run right up to you and plead with you to show him how to have eternal life, and even in that give-me situation, it might not work out that he gets it. But at least we can share what is true. In the back, go ahead. So what my brother in the back is asking is how do we harmonize my teaching about the investigative judgment with the parable of the, the man who's forgiven the 10,000 talents and holds his brother accountable? Uh, first of all, these fit together like hand in glove because that parable you're referring to shows that when I, when I confess my sin today and ask Christ to forgive me, I'm forgiven right now, right now. But... It doesn't mean it's going to work out for me in the end necessarily. In the parable, if I don't let that mercy that I want into my heart, if I'm not merciful, I don't end up retaining the mercy. And if the mercy doesn't become part of me, then I'm going to end up being held accountable 
not only for my new debts, but even for those that I hadn't paid from before. So that forgiveness is going to be canceled. Uh, what that shows is that the forgiving of the debt is not the determining of the destiny in that parable. And what we learn in the Bible is that it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So Revelation 3.5 is not a reference to the moment you ask God to forgive you. It's a reference to the judgment when your probation has ended and when you face your life record. Yeah, that's it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Uh, right behind you, Joseph had his hand up. Joseph, let me say this on the recording, otherwise it's going to be a blank spot. So in Titus chapter 2, it shows that the grace of God that brings salvation, it's not like it's in a dark corner, but it has appeared to all men. And when it appeared, it, when, when the grace of God, which really is not different than the love of God showing up, like we saw in chapter 3, when that grace of God appears, is it in a vacuum or is there an educational quality involved in it? It says it's teaching us that denying ungodliness in this present world, we should live righteously, holy, unblameably. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That does go very well with 1 Corinthians. I want to come to this brother. Go ahead. So a, a friend is asking about Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus said that wisdom is justified of her children. This way of speaking of justified is common both in the Old Testament and in the Gospels. Uh, many times they refer to people justifying themselves, for example, and, and then even justifying God. You know that according to Jesus, we justify God when we confess our sins. Uh, when we... Justification in these contexts is a reference of saying that someone is right. And with the children of this world find a way to justify themselves. I could say a lot more on this, but it's just not quite on target, target with what I'm talking about right now. Brother. So, so a friend here is asking... To what extent or in what way is righteousness by faith as taught by Jones and Wagner different than righteousness by faith as taught by other churches, which is quite a broad stroke. I mean, there's a lot of churches, right? But by Babylon, if we just want to use that word openly. That is a complex question for a few reasons. First of all, what the churches teach differs a lot, right? But also, Jones and Wagner were not static. And what they were teaching about righteousness by faith wasn't the same at the beginning as it was, what it was at the end. So uh, there is a change. And, uh, but there is some big differences. One is that Jones and Wagner were showing the, 
righteousness of Christ and the law, how they go together. And the real work of the evangelicals is to try to put them asunder so that there is a, the test coming and that we're meeting at a personal level whenever we're giving Bible studies to people is this idea of how to have the righteousness of Christ without the law. <clears throat> it's a real struggle that men are trying to accomplish. <clears throat> I've been sitting down in people's homes the last few weeks and I've seen men struggling through this idea, hoping that they can find a way to keep the law spiritually without having to keep it really. And, um, and uh, so that was a key thing. Righteousness and the law so go together. Didn't we see that in our very first day, those who were here in our first session, when we saw that the new covenant is the writing of the law in the heart. It's the business of conversion, of regeneration, of changing. Uh, we might have hands forever, but I'll take these last two. Go ahead, Joseph. So Jones and Wagner certainly were Seventh-day Adventists, and so they had a more thorough gospel than the evangelicals, one that encompassed how the judgment works and that special work of the high priest during the Day of Atonement, and that is to purify the house of Israel. Don't you know in the Day of Atonement that the priest made a special cleansing for the priest's family? That's represented, it's, that is pictured in Malachi is the work Jesus does today where he sits as a refiner and purifier of silver. But who is he purifying? It's the sons of Levi. That really is Seventh-day Adventists, those who are scattered throughout the world for the purpose of teaching the law to people, that we are the Levites. It's a special work going on right now of purifying. So the sanctuary message certainly broadened the thing. You have a comment or a question, then I'm going to go on. <clears throat> The end of it. And so that is so different than what we're looking at here. What we're looking at here is that he gives you his righteousness on the inside. That he's giving you forgiveness on the outside and righteousness on the inside. Colossians 3 clarifies this so directly. It says, you've put off the old man... But when you put on the new man, he's not like paper thin. When you put on the new man, you're putting on bowels of mercies, compassion. Uh, he gives quite a list there of beautiful, holy characteristics. And then at the very end, he says, above all, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. <clears throat> That's Colossians 3. You find it so interesting. So what I've been trying to say in this period and I might have like used up my whole time. It feels like it already. Let me just. What time is it? It felt like it. Um, and I don't. I can't. I don't have another period to fix it. So I'm just going to go over time for a minute. What I've been trying to say is that the gospel that we present to the world must be easy to comprehend, 
at its fundamental level, Acts 10 says that those that fear God and work righteousness are accepted with him. But not many will fear him and work righteousness if nothing moves them in that direction. It's when the love of God is seen that it moves people in that way and that he can change the heart. But where is the love of God most easily seen, most beautifully illustrated? That's in the cross. And that's why the preaching of the cross is the power of God. That's why the preaching of the cross is what changes people. That's why Paul did it everywhere he went. Because when he preached the cross, he preached a revelation of the love of God that would move people so they would so they would no longer be deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice, hateful, unbelieving, deceived. He preached that. We can do it. We don't have to worry about them comprehending all the arguments about particulars that have plagued people, even our friends in our own church, for so long. You know, they could get the simple thing. If they're regenerate, they're in. And the love of God will move them to live by faith. That's what it does when you see him, you trust him, you have a reason to go the right way. We ought to practice. You could practice on your neighbors until you get it right. It it won't be any harm in trying, and God will prosper our efforts. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, Would you please find a way to use us? And as Jesus revealed your love in acts of compassion and mercy, would you show us people in need of compassion and mercy? Then would you teach us how to reveal the love that you have for them? Move them to experience the faith that has moved us. And if we are more like them today than we know, would you find a way even now to separate us from various lusts and pleasures? Find a way to save us from being deceived and living in malice? Find a way to save us from how we have been. Let us be washed. I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in phoenix arizona gyc a supporting ministry of the seventh day adventist church seeks to inspire young people to be bible-based christ-centered and soul-winning christians to download or purchase other resources like this visit us online at www.gycweb.org